I am sure that the period of Advent to each one of us here is an exciting Christian time, carrying potently vivid images of Christmas just around the corner. Personally, I love it. But of course, these four important weeks, as we were reminded by Tony earlier, encourage us to refocus our thoughts and lives on two foundational aspects of Christianity. The coming of God's kingdom and our calling to accept this within us. The coming of God's kingdom and our calling to accept this within us. So, how should we respond? Well, inevitably, of course, we find the answer in Jesus' teaching. And for the focus of Scripture, of Jesus' words, upon which I should like to concentrate today, we can find on page 1051 in the Bibles, and it is from the Gospel of St. Luke, Chapter 17, verse 20 to 37. St. Luke 17, 20 to 37, on page 1051. <clears throat> the coming of the kingdom of God. Once, having been asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, the kingdom of God does not come with your careful observation, nor will people say, here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is within you. Then he said to his disciples, the time is coming when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, but you will not see it. Men will tell you, there he is, or here he is. Do not go running off after them, for the Son of Man in his day will be like lightning, which flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other. But first, he must suffer many things, and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so also it will be in the days of the Son of Man. People were eating, drinking, marrying, and being given up in marriage to the day Noah entered the ark. Then the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just like this on the day the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, 
No one who is on the roof of his house with his goods inside should go down to get them. Likewise, no one in the field should go back for anything. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever tries to keep his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life will preserve it. I tell you, on that night, two people will be in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding grain together. One will be taken and the other left. Where, Lord? they asked. He replied, where there is a dead body, there the vultures will gather. (laughs) It seems to me that this extract Jesus has developed to us in five sections. The first section is verses 20 to 21. And to find our eventual answers to these questions of the importance of Advent, let's re-examine parts of this, um, this reading. The Pharisees asked Jesus... Now, this implies that at least they were looking, but we, or perhaps even they, had absolutely no idea what they understood by the kingdom of God. Jesus' reply, he takes their question on the chin and puts them straight. The kingdom of God is not a physical domain with the idea of um, a prince or a king visiting his lands. It is already within us, and in this one sense, Advent has happened. The Pharisees, of course, were spiritually blind and simply could not see this. In the second section, from verses 22 to 5, Jesus unpacks what he has taught to his disciples, and, of course, for us. Only God knows when the kingdom will come, so don't waste your time looking for it. Another advent, a Christmas celebration. Verse 23 hints numerous false prophets will speak of what um, we tend to refer sometimes as end times. I faced a specific instance of this in my previous church at St. George's in Deal. Um, The local Baptist church on a Saturday evening had invited a visiting speaker, an American gentleman, and our congregation was asked if we would like to pop along. Now, already, George Lings, our vicar, had asked that speaker to deliver the sermon next day. And... We listened to what was being said, and George was so concerned at his message and what he considered was inaccuracies residing within it that he counselled his visit to us, and he also delivered the sermon himself the following day and explained his reasons why he had done this. And it built basically around false prophets. 
Jesus speaks of this again later in St. Luke's Gospel. In chapter 21, verse 1, he says, Don't let anyone deceive you, for many will come announcing themselves as the Messiah and saying, The time has come. Now, verse 24, I think, is a significant verse to us. For the Son of Man... For the Son of Man in his day will be like lightning, which flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other. We have an inkling of this again from St. Paul in 1 Corinthians when he reveals the kingdom of God as an instant in the twinkling of an eye. And to me... The idea of lightning reveals what I call the ineffable Christian experience. The ineffable Christian experience. What on earth do I mean by that? Well, this is what I mean. Something that is ineffable, ineffable is, indicates a significant event that is too profound to find expression in words. Sally and I, a couple of years ago now, listened to a recording, well, we listened to a performance by a choir in Canterbury Cathedral of delightful Tudor motets, idyllic. There were 600 people in that cathedral and the music wafted up to the cloistery and you could hear a pin drop. That is an ineffable experience, and what I mean. So yes, we all know we have the kingdom of God within us, but when I think around the second coming, the Perusian, my mind is completely blown away. God's coming on that day will be as lightning. Wow. Ineffable indeed. Jesus' coming will be a mind-blowing experience, totally beyond words. But in the way, so often, of Jesus, he goes on to give a stark warning to his disciples and to us concerning things that must happen to him. I think there are vital implications for them and us in this comment. Not only Jesus, but the church, you and me, must also suffer for our faith. On a minor level, I lost a very good friend when I accepted Christianity. Very good friend. And when I casually announced to him, I didn't bang drums and sound trumpets that I'd accepted the Christian faith. I haven't heard from him for 10 years now, and I found it quite painful. Now, that is a minor suffering, but my goodness, let me share with you the findings of, of academic research of two United States biblical scholars, Drs. Barrett and Johnson. They, in 2001 published a paper 
world Christian trends from AD 230 to AD 220, where they examined the fate of the early Christian church, and they extended these dates onward. In a section called An Overview of Martyrdom, their research presented evidence for the following conclusion. Over the 20 centuries of the Christian faith, some 70 million, 70 million Christians have been murdered for that faith and hence are called martyrs. And this number continues to grow in the new millennium as over 400 martyrs, 400 martyrs are killed each day. Now, as I reflect on these highly disturbing figures from two scholars whose findings and research I respect, uh, it seems to me to present a paradox. It's what I term an unanswerable answer. Oh, what? what on earth is he talking about? An unanswerable answer. Allow me to explain this seemingly difficult statement. There has to be considerable substance in any religion which makes such appalling demands on its followers. For the evidence is incomprehensibly indefinable. And yet the residue paradox is that somehow, in the manner of so many mysteries associated with Christianity, such deaths actually become more understandable. Facing any life-threatening trial, it is possible for Christian martyrs to display an inconceivably mysterious mark of serenity. I cannot explain this, but there is evidence, an answer, in the validity of truth in my remark. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was martyred by the Nazis for a number of reasons, but not the least was not renouncing his faith. And his executioners, in what was <clears throat> historical evidence, describes it as an appalling death, displayed a serenity. We also find down-to-earth biblical evidence in chapter 7 of St. Luke. I'm giving poor old St. Luke a bashing today, I'm afraid. And this is in the martyrdom of Stephen, which is in Acts 7, 35. Let me read it. Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed steadily upwards into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at God's right hand. And later on, in St. Luke relates, how as the murderous stones came hurtling toward him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he fell to his knees shouting, Lord, don't charge them with this sin. And with that he died. Now, I'm sure I'm not alone in regarding Stephen's martyrdom as a very brave yet incredibly sad story. And yet it's one that is accompanied by awe. The 
unanswerable answer is is the good somehow that emanates as examples and encouragement to us of those who understood their suffering and yet were still able to give up their lives with this kind of serenity. I think realistically with us, it's probably facing an ordeal and then finding within you an element of peace. Rather like me giving my first sermon. That's an aside. Let us continue referring, looking at St. Luke's passage. In section three of the five sections which I intimated is from 26 to 29, where we read of Lot and Noah. Now, this is specifically of ordinary people living ordinary lives, blissfully unaware of what was going to happen, even though they had been given plenty of warnings by God. Notice the finality in the repetition for emphasis of the words, and destroyed them all. Verses 27 and verses 29. Jesus continues to stress the normality of life before the flash of lightning hits the world in section 4, running from verses 30 to 36. But he also offers hope to Christian followers For whilst Christians and non-Christians alike will mix until the lightning strikes, then will come the separation of sheep and goats, referred to in Matthew 25, 32. And the final verse, 37, offers us the denouement of the significance of this passage. Now here... Jesus uses a favourite technique of his. He answers the disciples' question with one of his own, which again, as again so often happens, contains an element of obscurity. Where, Lord, they asked, he replied, Where there is a dead body, there the vultures will gather. Now, why is Jesus so very often obscure? And I think he does this for two reasons. It's to make the disciples and us think not only about what he is saying, but around what he is saying, and to focus on his words. Um. We, we're all acquainted with the nature films on TV that show all too graphically eagles and vultures feasting on dead carcasses. And I think what he's implying here is that God's judgment will hit the dead and the living, but those who believe and trust in Jesus' name shall live and not die. The time will be when God considers it appropriate to judge the world and, of course, all of its people. Another wow event. 
So good, folks, what's the point of this passage? Well, I think we have to remember that Jesus was speaking in the very early days of Christianity. What what he was saying was new. It was novel. And like all things new, the import of his message took some swallowing. For even whilst he was speaking, the kingdom of God was happening before their eyes, but no one could recognize him or this fact. And I think we can compare this situation of spiritual blindness with Jesus standing before Pilate, as recorded in St. John's Gospel. Pilate asked Jesus, what is truth? When the ultimate expression of truth ever known to or in the world is there standing in front of him. So, we've read and explored a passage of scripture on the kingdom of God which offers us an invitation to reconsider Advent in a different light. But what practical message and indeed relevance can we find on the 15th of December 2019 in words which scholars believe were written around 70 AD? Well, each one of us will respond to it differently and yet with similar tones of similarity. This leads me to reconsidering my own journey into Christianity. Unlike the Pharisees in verse 20, relating my thoughts to the passage, I was not looking for Jesus. Let me explain briefly. As a child growing up in southeast London, I was a chorister in in Southwark Cathedral. I fell in love and wallowed in the beauty of language, discovered common prayer, the liturgy and the Bible. I loved it. I loved the incredible beauty of music in the English cathedral tradition. This included, of course, motets, resounding anthems by S.S. Wesley, and often convoluted psalm chants. I loved the architecture, the stained glass windows, the delicate wood carvings I saw around me. Oh, well, of course I was aware of God and Jesus, but in those days they were almost bolt-on extras. I was not a Christian. So, yes, were you to assume my experiences were purely aesthetic, you were quite correct. At an early age, I went away into the Merchant Navy as a navigating officer cadet, working my way up to become a chief officer aboard deep-sea dry cargo ships, travelling literally all over the world. Was I looking for the kingdom of God then? Not at all. I was neither agnostic nor atheistic during this idyllic period this idyllic period in my life, I was worse. I was totally indifferent. But at the same time, whilst my career was in the ascendancy, my personal life was a mess. Nothing too sinister at all, just sure leaves were periods of sheer loneliness and unfulfillment that I was left perched unhappily on my own Christian and social fence 
looking for a way out, but totally unable to find it. Yes, occasional promptings from the Holy Spirit were heard, but they were also totally unrequited. Verses 26 to 29 of St. Luke, I was carrying on with my life, deaf to God. But God was looking for me, and his assault was subtle to the point of extremity as he hit me hard in two areas where I was unsuspectingly most vulnerable. For the Holy Spirit is made of sterner stuff. In the Merchant Navy, you join and leave ships all over the world, which necessitate sometimes travel arrangements having to be made. And during this period, officers are put into local hotels and hostels, whatever. And I turned mainly through boredom, mainly through a compulsion within me, which I could not explain, to the Gideon Bible, which appears in the top drawer of bedside lockers, hotels all over the world. And I found, I found a verse in St. John 14, 14. Ask anything in my name and I will do it. Well, that Bloomy verse. It kept coming back to me over and over again over the years. Long night watches between midnight and four. Suddenly, out of the blue, will come back this verse. And it kept nagging away at me. <clears throat> my favourite subjects in school were maths and physics and English language and literature with a marked love of poetry. And this was the second vulnerable area, unsuspectingly, where the Holy Spirit hit me. I had appointed to my watch a navigating officer cadet from Pangbourne Nautical College. Um, that's the sort of Eton of nautical schools, with apologies to Paul. And um, Bevington loved poetry. And used to stand on the bridge spouting poetry. And I thought, oh, for goodness sake, one day I said to him, look, sunshine, forget all this nonsense. I want you to concentrate on the regulations for preventing collisions at sea. There'd be a damn sight more good to you up here on the bridge of a ship than spouting poetry. And Bevington, bless his heart, took the bull by the horns one day and he said to me, sir... I'm going to read you a poem by Rudyard Kipling. And if you find there's nothing in this poem that touches the, your life at this precise second, what you're doing, I'll never speak poetry on the bridge again. I said, OK, sunshine, sock it to me and let's have a bit of peace up here. And he gave me all six verses of the Sestina of the Tramp Royal. Let me share the first verse with you. Speaking in general, I have found them good. The happy roads that lead you all the world. Speaking in general, I have found them good. The happy roads that lead you all the world. And the poem goes on in the same ilk for six verses. Okay, I was sold. I had to. But the significance of this is that 
a loving a love of poetry was um, almost unheard of. In all the years I spent at sea, I suppose I met two people, Bevington and A. Another, who shared a love of poetry. But what Bevington did for me was to awaken within me a sensitivity which I had forgotten that I possessed. And I started to take books of poetry away to see, which inevitably led me into George Herbert, the Christian poets, T.S. Eliot, <clears throat> the resounding intellectual challenges there. <clears throat> then I was appointed a navigating officer aboard a supertanker. Now, supertankers, <laughs> 300,000 tons of sheer joy for me. 36, 360 metres or a quarter of a mile long, realistically, depending on the specific gravity and temperature of the oil, this could amount to 84 million gallons of voyage. It was a pretty big ship. If we plopped one outside St Luke's Church here, with the bows at the door, then pointing towards Canterbury, the stern would be down at St. Denis Road, just to give you some idea. I was being geared for stardom and command of my own ship. I was totally contented with life, 100%. I had my heart's desire. I was there on the peak of life. And then God struck. I had my own, verse 24, lightning moment. Down in the dining saloon, one evening, we'd finished supper laughing and joking and all of a sudden I burst into tears and I cried, cried and cried. I dived out of the saloon, <laughs> all the other officers looked at me and not surprisingly wondered what on earth was happening and I went up to my cabin and um, started to try and sort myself out in readiness for the watch at midnight. The old man came up, Captain Agnew, wonderful captain. He looked into me, poked his head around the door, and for the first time in our relationship, he looked at me and he said, are you all right, Ray? He called me by my Christian name. And I said, yes, sir. He said, okay. As far as the other officers were concerned, when you're away on a long voyage, then these is one of these things that happen. And as other events on the ship, um, superseded my bursting into tears, life returned gradually to normal. It was one of those things. But the point is, it wasn't for me. The Holy Spirit, Jesus, grabbed me by the scruff of my indifferent neck and knocked me off my perch. I had to discover why this event had happened taken me over totally against my will or even my strength. The outcome? Merchant Navy career came to a very abrupt halt. I left the sea and embarked on courses of undergraduate and postgraduate university study because I had to seek a reason for that embarrassing outburst that culminated in a complete change of my life. So I started scholastic, academic research into literature, theology, history, philosophy of religion, 
logic, scientific method, just to try to understand a reasoning behind this outburst. Was my battle accepting God's kingdom? Calling? No, it wasn't over. I embarked on a struggle that lasted 30 years. I could not accept Jesus simply because Christian friends, family who, unknown to me, were praying for me, told me that I should. I had to find secular-based evidence for the existence of Jesus as a real figure rather than a historically, biblically-based figure. I found my sufficient evidence, yes, and in the end I simply said a resounding yes. I discovered the reality of the Christian paradox of Advent and my journey into Christianity developed into a quest, which is what that book is all about. Was there a price to pay? Oh, yes. But it was a price that was worthwhile. God hadn't finished with me. I was accepted at Cambridge to read marine law. But another resounding no from God meant I ended up at Durham. And from there, God placed me into independent school teaching, residential teaching for 20 years. Subsequently, my life has been fulfilled beyond my wildest dreams. 17 years married, delightful home, sharing immeasurable happiness with Sally, a satisfying career as a marine author of non-fiction books, just signed a contract recently for the 17th, a life of service fed into this, interviewing with citizens' advice, senior watchkeeper officer and training team manager with the NCI that supports Dover Coast Guard, leading a critical analysis of poetry group for U3A and indeed lay service in two previous Anglican churches. The final lesson I have learnt from this, which Jesus taught me, is this. When God calls us into his kingdom, we have to listen and eventually accept, even beyond our own desires. For God still calls ordinary people like you and me, as he did in the days of Noah. But... He will neither remove our free will nor alter our character, personality or temperament other than to refine these more towards the plans that he has for our life. Basically, if we respond to God only half-heartedly, he will still use us but we restrict the extent to which this may prove totally effective. Amen.